Section five of Eureka, a prose poem by Edgar Allan Poe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I maintain first that only in the mode described is it conceivable that matter could have been diffused so as to fulfill at once the conditions of irradiation and of generally equable distribution. I maintain, secondly, that these conditions themselves have been opposed upon me as necessities in a train of ratiocination as rigorously logical as that which establishes any demonstration in Euclid. And I maintain, thirdly, that even if the charge of hypothesis were as fully sustained as it is, in fact, unsustained and untenable, still the validity and indisputability of my result would not, even in the slightest particular, be disturbed to explain the newtonian gravity a law of nature a law whose existence as such no one out of bedlam questions a law whose admission as such enables us to account for nine-tenths of the universal phenomena a law which merely because it does so enable us to account for these phenomena we are perfectly willing without reference to any other considerations to admit and cannot help admitting as a law, a law, nevertheless, of which neither the principle nor the modus operandi of the principle has ever yet been traced by the human analysis. A law, in short, which neither in its detail nor in its generality has been found susceptible of explanation at all, is at length seen to be at every point thoroughly explicable, provided only we yield our assent to what? to an hypothesis why if an hypothesis if the merest hypothesis if an hypothesis for whose assumption as in the case of that pure hypothesis the newtonian law itself no shadow of a priori reason could be assigned if an hypothesis even so absolute as all this implies would enable us to perceive a principle for the newtonian law would enable us to understand as satisfied conditions so miraculously so ineffably complex and seemingly irreconcilable as those involved in the relations of which gravity tells us what rational being could so expose his fatuity as to call even this absolute hypothesis an hypothesis any longer unless indeed he were to persist in so calling it with the understanding that he did so simply for the sake of consistency in words but what is the true state of our present case? What is the fact? Not only that it is not an hypothesis which we are required to adopt, in order to admit the principle at issue explained, but that it is a logical conclusion which we are requested not to adopt if we can avoid it, which we are simply invited to deny if we can, a conclusion of so accurate a logicality that to dispute it would be the effort to doubt its validity beyond our power, a conclusion from which we see no mode of escape, turn as we will, a result which confronts us either at the end of an inductive journey from the phenomena of the very law discussed, or at the close of a deductive career from the most rigorously simple of all conceivable assumptions, the assumption, in a word, of simplicity itself and if here for the mere sake of cavilling it be urged that although my starting-point is as i assert the assumption of absolute simplicity yet simplicity considered merely in itself is no axiom 
and that only deductions from axioms are indisputable it is thus that i reply every other science than logic is the science of certain concrete relations arithmetic for example is the science of the relations of number geometry of the relations of form mathematics in general of the relations of quantity in general of whatever can be increased or diminished logic however is the science of relation in the abstract of absolute relation of relation considered solely in itself an axiom in any particular science other than logic is thus merely a proposition announcing certain concrete relations which seem to be too obvious for dispute as when we say for instance that the whole is greater than its part and thus again the principle of the logical axiom in other words of an axiom in the abstract is simply obviousness of relation now it is clear not only that what is obvious to one mind may not be obvious to another but that what is obvious to one mind at one epoch may be anything but obvious at another epoch to the same mind it is clear moreover that what to-day is obvious even to the majority of mankind or to the majority of the best intellects of mankind may to-morrow be to either majority more or less obvious or in no respect obvious at all it is seen then that the axiomatic principle itself is susceptible of variation and of course that axioms are susceptible of similar change being mutable the truths which grow out of them are necessarily mutable too or in other words are never to be positively depended upon as truths at all since truth and immutability are one it will now be readily understood that no axiomatic idea no idea founded in the fluctuating principle obviousness of relation can possibly be so secure so reliable a basis for any structure erected by the reason as that idea whatever it is wherever we can find it or if it be practicable to find it anywhere which is irrelative altogether which not only presents to the understanding no obviousness of relation either greater or less to be considered but subjects the intellect not in the slightest degree to the necessity of even looking at any relation at all if such an idea be not what we too heedlessly term an axiom it is at least preferable as a logical basis to any axiom ever propounded or to all imaginable axioms combined and such precisely is the idea with which my deductive process so thoroughly corroborated by induction commences my particle proper is but absolute irrelation to sum up what has been here advanced as a starting point i have taken it for granted simply that the beginning had nothing behind it or before it that it was a beginning in fact that it was a beginning and nothing different from a beginning in short that this beginning was that which it was if this be a mere assumption then a mere assumption let it be to conclude this branch of the subject i am fully warranted in announcing that the law which we have been in the habit of calling gravity exists on account of matter having been irradiated at its origin 
automatically into a limited sphere of space from one individual unconditional irrelative and absolute particle proper by the sole process in which it was possible to satisfy at the same time the two conditions irradiation and generally equable distribution throughout the sphere that is to say by a force varying in direct proportion with the squares of the distances between the irradiated atoms respectively and the particular center of irradiation i have already given my reasons for presuming matter to have been diffused by a determinate rather than by a continuous or infinitely continued force supposing a continuous force we should be unable in the first place to comprehend a reaction at all and we should be required in the second place to entertain the impossible conception of an infinite extension of matter not to dwell upon the impossibility of the conception the infinite extension of matter is an idea which if not positively disproved is at least not in any respect warranted by telescopic observation of the stars a point to be explained more fully hereafter and this empirical reason for believing in the original affinity of matter is unempirically confirmed for example admitting for the moment the possibility of understanding space filled with the irradiated atoms that is to say admitting as well as we can for argument's sake that the succession of the irradiated atoms had absolutely no end then it is abundantly clear that even when the volition of god had been withdrawn from them and thus the tendency to return into unity permitted abstractly to be satisfied this permission would have been nugatory and invalid practically valueless and of no effect whatever no reaction could have taken place no movement toward unity could have been made no law of gravity could have been obtained to explain grant the abstract tendency of any one atom to any one other as the inevitable result of diffusion from the normal unity or what is the same thing admit any given atom as proposing to move in any given direction it is clear that since there is an infinity of atoms on all sides of the atom proposing to move it never can actually move toward the satisfaction of its tendency in the direction given on account of a precisely equal and counterbalancing tendency in the direction diametrically opposite in other words exactly as many tendencies to unity are behind the hesitating atom as before it for it is a mere sodicism to say that one infinite line is longer or shorter than another infinite line or that one infinite number is greater or less than another number that is infinite thus the atom in question must remain stationary forever under the impossible circumstances which we have been merely endeavoring to conceive for argument's sake there could have been no aggregation of matter no stars no worlds nothing but a perpetually atomic and inconsequential universe in fact view it as we will the whole idea of unlimited matter is not only untenable but impossible and preposterous with the understanding of a sphere of atoms however we perceive at once a satisfiable tendency to union the general result of the tendency each to each being a tendency of all to the center the general process of condensation or approximation 
commences immediately by a common and simultaneous movement on withdrawal of the divine volition the individual approximations or coalescences not coalitions of atom with atom being subject to almost infinite variations of time degree and condition on account of the excessive multiplicity of relation arising from the differences of form assumed as characterizing the atoms at the moment of their quitting the particle proper as well as from the subsequent particle in equidistance each from each what i wish to impress upon the reader is the certainty of their arising at once on withdrawal of the diffusive force or divine volition out of the condition of the atoms as described at innumerable points throughout the universal sphere innumerable agglomerations characterized by innumerable specific differences of form size essential nature and distance each from each the development of repulsion electricity must have commenced of course with the very earliest particular efforts at unity and must have proceeded constantly in the ratio of coalescence that is to say in that of condensation or again of heterogeneity thus the two principles proper attraction and repulsion the material and the spiritual accompany each other in the strictest fellowship forever thus the body and the soul walk hand in hand if now in fancy we select any one of the agglomerations considered as their primary stages throughout the universal sphere and suppose this incipient agglomeration to be taking place at the point where the center of our sun exists or rather where it did exist originally for the sun is perpetually shifting his position we shall find ourselves met and borne onward for a time at least by the most magnificent of theories by the nebular cosmogony of laplace although cosmogony is far too comprehensive a term for what he really discusses which is the constitution of our solar system alone of one among the myriad of similar systems which make up the universe proper that universal sphere that all-inclusive and absolute cosmos which forms the subject of my present discourse confining himself to an obviously limited region that of our solar system with its comparatively immediate vicinity and merely assuming that is to say assuming without any basis whatever either deductive or inductive much of what i have been just endeavoring to place upon a more stable basis than assumption assuming for example matter is diffused without pretending to account for the diffusion throughout and somewhat beyond the space occupied by our system diffused in a state of heterogeneous nebulosity and obedient to that omniprevalent law of gravity at whose principle he ventured to make no guess assuming all this which is quite true although he had no logical right to its assumption laplace has shown dynamically and mathematically that the results in such case necessarily ensuing are those and those alone which we find manifested in the actually existing condition of the system itself to explain let us conceive that particular agglomeration of which we have just spoken the one at the point designated by our sun's centre to have so far proceeded that a vast quantity of nebulous matter has here assumed a roughly globular form its center being of course coincident with what is now or rather what was originally the center of our sun 
and its periphery extending out beyond the orbit of neptune the most remote of our planets in other words let us assume the diameter of this rough sphere to be some six thousand millions of miles for ages this mass of matter has been undergoing condensation until at length it has become reduced into the bulk we imagine having proceeded gradually of course from its atomic and imperceptible state into what we understand of visible palpable or otherwise appreciable nebulosity now the condition of this mass implies a rotation about an imaginary axis a rotation which commencing with the absolute incipiency of the aggregation has been ever since acquiring velocity the very first two atoms which met approaching each other from points not diametrically opposite would in rushing partially past each other form a nucleus for the rotary movement described how this would increase in velocity is readily seen the two atoms are joined by others an aggregation is formed the mass continues to rotate while condensing but any atom at the circumference has of course a more rapid motion than one near the centre the outer atom however with its superior velocity approaches the centre carrying the superior velocity with it as it goes thus every atom proceeding inwardly and finally attaching itself to the condensed centre adds something to the original velocity of that centre that is to say increases the rotary movement of the mass let us now suppose this mass so far condensed that it occupies precisely the space circumscribed by the orbit of neptune and that the velocity with which the surface of the mass moves in the general rotation is precisely that velocity which neptune now revolves about the sun at this epoch then we are to understand that the constantly increasing centrifugal force having gotten the better of the non-increasing centripetal loosened and separated the exterior and least condensed stratum or a few of the exterior and least condensed strata at the equator of the sphere where the tangential velocity predominated so that the strata formed about the main body an independent ring encircling the equatorial regions just as the exterior portion thrown off by excessive velocity of rotation from a grindstone would form a ring about the grindstone but for the solidity of the superficial material were this caoutchouc or anything similar in consistency precisely the phenomenon i describe would be presented the ring thus whirled from the nebulous mass revolved of course as a separate ring with just that velocity with which while the surface of the mass is rotated in the meantime condensation still proceeding the interval between the discharged ring and the main body continued to increase until the former was left at a vast distance from the latter now admitting the ring to have possessed by some seemingly accidental arrangement of its heterogeneous materials a constitution nearly uniform then this ring as such would never have ceased revolving about its primary but as might have been anticipated there appears to have been enough irregularity in the disposition of the materials to make them cluster about centers of superior solidity and thus the annular form was destroyed no doubt the band was soon broken up into several portions and one of these portions predominating in mass absorbed the others into itself the whole settling spherically into a planet 
that this latter as a planet continued the revolutionary movement which characterized it while a ring is sufficiently clear and that it took upon itself also an additional movement in its new condition of sphere is readily explained the ring being understood as yet unbroken we see that its exterior while the whole revolves about the parent body moves more rapidly than its interior while the rupture occurred then some portion in each fragment must have been moving with greater velocity than the others the superior movement prevailing must have whirled each fragment round that is to say have caused it to rotate and the direction of the rotation must of course have been the direction of the revolution whence it arose all the fragments having become subject to the rotation described must in coalescing have imparted it to the one planet constituted by their coalescence this planet was neptune its material continuing to undergo condensation and the centrifugal force generated in its rotation getting at length the better of the centripetal as before in the case of the parent orb a ring was whirled also from the equatorial surface of this planet this ring having been ununiform in its constitution was broken up and its several fragments being absorbed by the most massive were collectively spherified into a moon subsequently the operation was repeated and a second moon was the result we thus account for the planet neptune with the two satellites which accompany him in throwing off a ring from its equator the sun re-established that equilibrium between its centripetal and centrifugal forces which had been disturbed in the process of condensation but as this condensation still proceeded the equilibrium was again immediately disturbed through the increase of rotation by the time the mass had so far shrunk that it occupied a spherical space just that circumscribed by the orbit of uranus we are to understand that the centrifugal force had so far obtained the ascendancy that new relief was needed a second equatorial band was consequently thrown off which proving ununiform was broken up as before in the case of neptune the fragments settling into the planet uranus the velocity of whose actual revolution about the sun indicates of course the rotary speed of that sun's equatorial surface at the moment of the separation uranus adopting a rotation from the collective rotations of the fragments composing it as previously explained now threw off ring after ring each of which becoming broken up settled into a moon three moons at different epochs having been formed in this manner by the rupture and general spherification of as many distinct ununiform rings by the time the sun had shrunk until it occupied a space just that circumscribed by the orbit of saturn the balance we are to suppose between its centripetal and centrifugal forces had again become so far disturbed through increase of rotary velocity the result of condensation that a third effort at equilibrium became necessary and an annular band was therefore whirled off as twice before which on rupture through ununiformity became consolidated into the planet saturn this latter threw off in the first place seven uniform bands which on rupture were spherified respectively into as many moons but subsequently it appears to have discharged at three distinct but not very distant epochs three rings whose equability of constitution was by apparent accident 
so considerable as to present no occasion for their rupture thus they continue to revolve as rings i use the phrase apparent accident for of accident in the ordinary sense there was of course nothing the term is properly applied only to the result of indistinguishable or not immediately traceable law shrinking still farther until it occupied just the space circumscribed by the orbit of jupiter the sun now found need of farther effort to restore the counterbalance of its two forces continually disarranged in the still continued increase of rotation jupiter accordingly was now thrown off passing from the annular to the planetary condition and on attaining this latter threw off in its turn at four different epochs four rings which finally resolved themselves into so many moons still shrinking until its sphere occupied just the space defined by the orbit of the asteroids the sun now discarded a ring which appears to have had eight centers of superior solidity and on breaking up to have separated into eight fragments no one of which so far predominated in mass as to absorb the others all therefore as distinct although comparatively small planets proceeded to revolve in orbits whose distances each from each may be considered as in some degree the measure of the force which drove them asunder all the orbits nevertheless being so closely coincident as to admit of our calling them one in view of the other planetary orbits continuing to shrink the sun on becoming so small as just to fill the orbit of mars now discharged this planet of course by the process repeatedly described having no moon however mars could have thrown off no ring in fact an epoch had now arrived in the career of the parent body the center of the system the decrease of its nebulosity which is the increase of its density and which again is the decrease of its condensation out of which latter arose the constant disturbance of equilibrium must by this period have attained a point at which the efforts for restoration would have been more and more ineffectual just in proportion as they were less frequently needed thus the process of which we have been speaking would everywhere show signs of exhaustion in the planets first and secondly in the original mass we must not fall into the error of supposing the decrease of interval observed among the planets as we approach the sun to be in any respect indicative of an increase of frequency in the periods at which they were discarded exactly the converse is to be understood the longest interval of time must have occurred between the discharges of the two interior the shortest between those of the two exterior planets the decrease of the interval of space is nevertheless the measure of the density and thus inversely of the condensation of the sun throughout the processes detailed having shrunk however so far as to fill only the orbit of our earth the parent sphere whirled from itself still one other body the earth in a condition so nebulous as to admit of this body's discarding in its turn yet another which is our moon but here terminated the lunar formations finally subsiding to the orbits first of venus and then of mercury the sun discarded these two interior planets neither of which has given birth to any moon 
thus from his original bulk or so to speak more accurately from the condition in which we first considered him from a partially spherified nebular mass certainly much more than five thousand six hundred millions of miles in diameter the great central orb and origin of our solar planetary lunar system has gradually descended by condensation in obedience to the law of gravity to a globe only eight hundred and eighty two thousand miles in diameter but it by no means follows either that its condensation is yet complete or that it may not still possess the capacity of whirling from itself another planet i have here given in outline of course but still with all the detail necessary for distinctness a view of the nebular theory as its author himself conceived it from whatever point we regard it we shall find it beautifully true it is by far too beautiful indeed not to possess truth as its essentiality and here i am very profoundly serious in what i say in the revolution of the satellites of uranus there does appear something seemingly inconsistent with the assumptions of laplace but that one inconsistency can invalidate a theory constructed from a million of intricate consistencies is a fancy fit only for the fantastic in prophesying confidently that the apparent anomaly to which i refer will sooner or later be found one of the strongest possible corroborations of the general hypothesis i pretend to know a special spirit of divination it is a matter which the only difficulty seems not to foresee the bodies whirled off in the processes described would exchange it has been seen the superficial rotation of the orbs whence they originated for a revolution of equal velocity about these orbs as distant centers and the revolution thus engendered must proceed so long as the centripetal force or that which the discarded body gravitates toward its parent is neither greater nor less than that by which it was discarded that is than the centrifugal or far more properly than the tangential velocity from the unity however of the origin of these two forces we might have expected to find them as they are found the one accurately counterbalancing the other it has been shown indeed that the act of whirling off is in every case merely an act for the preservation of the counterbalance after referring however the centripetal force to the omniprevalent law of gravity it has been the fashion with astronomical treatises to seek beyond the limits of mere nature that is to say of secondary cause a solution of the phenomena of tangential velocity this latter they attribute directly to a first cause to god the force which carries a stellar body around its primary they assert to have originated in the impulse given immediately by the finger this is the childish phraseology employed by the finger of deity itself in this view the planets fully formed are conceived to have been hurled from the divine hand to a position in the vicinity of the suns with an impetus mathematically adapted to the masses or attractive capacities of the suns themselves an idea so grossly unphilosophical although so supinely adopted could have arisen only from the difficulty of otherwise accounting for the absolutely accurate adaptation each to each of two forces so seemingly independent one of the other 
as are the gravitating and tangential. But it should be remembered that, for a long time, the coincidence between the moon's rotation and her sidereal revolution, two matters seemingly far more independent than those now considered, was looked upon as positively miraculous, and there was a strong disposition, even among astronomers, to attribute the marvel to the direct and continual agency of God, who, in this case, it was said, had found it necessary to interpose, specially, among his general laws, a set of subsidiary regulations for the purpose of forever concealing from mortal eyes the glories, or perhaps the horrors, of the other side of the moon, of that mysterious hemisphere which has always avoided, and must perpetually avoid, the telescopic scrutiny of mankind. The advance of science, however, soon demonstrated, what to the philosophical instinct needed no demonstration, that the one movement is but a portion something more even than a consequence of the other for my part i have no patience with fantasies at once so timorous so idle and so awkward they belong to the veriest cowardice of thought that nature and the god of nature are distinct no thinking being can long doubt by the former we imply merely the laws of the latter but with the very idea of god omnipotent omniscient we entertain also the idea of the infallibility of his laws. With him there being neither past nor future, with him all being now, do we not insult him in supposing his laws so contrived as not to provide for every possible contingency? Or rather, what idea can we have of any possible contingency except that it is at once a result and a manifestation of his laws? He who, divesting himself of prejudice, shall have the rare courage to think absolutely for himself, cannot fail to arrive, in the end, at the condensation of laws into law, cannot fail of reaching the conclusion that each law of nature is dependent at all points upon all other laws, and that all are but consequences of one primary exercise of the divine volition such is the principle of the cosmogony which with all necessary deference i here venture to suggest and to maintain in this view it will be seen that dismissing as frivolous and even impious the fancy of the tangential force having been imparted to the planets immediately by the finger of god i consider this force as originating in the rotation of the stars this rotation as brought about by the inrushing of the primary atoms toward their respective centers of aggregation this inrushing as the consequence of the law of gravity this law as but the mode in which is necessarily manifested the tendency of the atoms to return into imparticularity this tendency to return as but the inevitable reaction of the first and most sublime of acts that act by which a god, self-existing and alone existing, became all things at once, through dint of his volition, while all things were thus constituted a portion of God. End of section 5